Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture for today is from 1 Samuel 8, and it's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with the reading. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. So appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We have been in a series called Wishin', Hopin', Prayin', in which we have been looking at the longings, hopes, and prayers of Scripture. What did our faith forebearers hope for? How do their prayers inform ours today? And what do we do with longing unfulfilled? Today, we are looking at Israel's longing for a king. It comes early in the Hebrew Bible and is followed by lots of prophets saying, maybe this was not a good idea. Our story begins today at the end of Samuel's life. The priest has grown old, the text tells us. We read his birth story a few months ago together, how his mother Hannah had earnestly prayed for a child, a son. And when she had Samuel, she brought him back to the priest Eli, to be raised and dedicated to God's work. And here we are at the end. And he's done a good job. Later on in 1 Samuel, when he addresses Israel for the last time, no one will have a complaint against him. But right now, there is a complaint. And it has to do with his two sons, Joel and Abijah. They are not great. They are corrupt men. They profiteer, take bribes, and pervert justice, actions that strike to the heart of the covenant relationship Israel has with God. And it'd be one thing if Samuel and his sons had another job. They were carpenters or something, but they were judges. 
Where will justice come from if the judges appointed to ensure justice in the land are instead perverting it for their own gain? And at this point in Israel's history, the nation is a loose federation of tribes governed by judges. So this is no longer the small band of people in the desert. The Israel, Israelites have grown and expanded and have real honest-to-God nation problems. So we already know that their leaders do not inspire confidence for the future. But to add insult to injury, they are also experiencing military threats from the Philistines. You know, the nation where Goliath comes from. So no wonder they're asking for a king, right? The people will say later on in this chapter that they want a king so that he can fight their battles. So the threat of conquest and domination loom large in their collective imagination. And to add to the physical and political insecurity of their existence, they had a lot of land and property to consider. They had more than just the packs on their back now. They had vested economic and political interests that needed to be protected. And they just wanted to be like the other nations, the ones that they've been rubbing up against in friendship and in conflict. But Samuel's concern is that this request for a king is not only a socio-political request. This is Israel we're talking about. This is a people whose very identity is based on the fact that they are not like other nations. They are to be set apart, God's people distinct from the world around them. How can Israel maintain its connection to God in covenant if they become like other nations? How can Israel have an earthly king without undermining the sovereignty of God? And this covenant relationship didn't appear out of nowhere. It came as a response to oppression and suffering. This covenant was created precisely outside of vested interest power arrangements. It's important to remember that the Israelites did not overthrow the Egyptians. They were delivered from them. The Israelites did not take over Pharaoh's palace. They wandered the desert and worshiped God under the stars in a collapsible tent. So this desire for a king represents a significant shift in Israel, away from distinctive community and toward conformity with the patterns of this world. And in this case, they are shifting from a delivered desert people to a nation with a head of state and centralized military and economic power. And as they move from a decentralized shared rule of judges to a monarchy, what's at stake is not a mere governmental detail. It's the very identity and particularity of Israel. And if we were to keep reading this chapter, we would see that Israel wants a king to fight their battles for them. But Samuel is quick to say, he will not fight your battles for you. You will fight his battles for him. Because what kings do is take. They take your sons and they turn them into cogs in the military machine. They take your daughters and they turn them into feeders of product lines. They take your land 
the fields, the vineyards, the olive groves, and use them up in service to the kingdom. They will take your servants, your livestock, and your flocks and dub them kingdom's property. All that is yours, even your very life, will be yours no longer. So no, a king will not fight your battles. You will fight his. A king will not lead you. He will rule over you. A king will not facilitate abundance and common interest. He will take what he wants, and his interest will reign supreme. But like a comical Monty Python movie, the people ignore Samuel's warning and say, A king! A king! We want a king! So, according to our text, God rubs God's temples and sighs. Just give them a king. It's not you, it's me. So this conflict between whether or not a king is the right decision is an undercurrent of First and Second Samuel. Even as King David is anointed and blessed, Samuel's voice in the background serves as a warning to the people. This is not the deliverance you think it is, he whispers. And I'll save you the trouble of reading the rest of the Hebrew Bible this morning to see how the kingdom thing works out. In the very long line of kings, including when Israel and Judah are split into two kingdoms, there are only two unproblematic ones. Only two good kings. And our most famous ones, David and Solomon, are not it. Hezekiah and Josiah, those are our only palatable kings. In the book of Judges, a book that immediately precedes 1 Samuel, the story ends with the lines, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And let me tell you, that theme extends into the era of kings. But this time it's not just the regular folk. The very wealthy and powerful people do what is right in their own eyes with little accountability in the name of God. And while 1 Samuel is written from the perspective of real time, that whoever penned the story is writing as if in his study at the end of each day, we know that this part of scripture was written during the Babylonian exile. The Israelites were living in Babylon, their beloved Jerusalem destroyed, and their loved ones killed, their survivors carried off as captives of big bad Babylon. And they were forced to live as slaves to another nation separated from their people and spaces that anchored their identity. And so they wrote this story down as an act of self-preservation. They told their stories quietly at the dinner table. They obsessively scanned the timeline of things that happened to see what had gone wrong. How could this happen to them? Ah, don't you remember old Samuel warning us? One man may have said. And another was, would respond, yes, but then God anointed David, so I think it was fine. And then another would chime in, well, look how his reign turned out. Murders, assaults, family drama. God anointed, that seems generous. That response is probably a wise woman. We see this conflicted storytelling throughout First and Second Samuel. This struggle to preserve their identity, their dignity, their hope for their people. But even without the context 
of authorship and timelines. I bet that we all could have guessed that the King stuff was a mixed bag at best. Of course, we have a millennia of hindsight, but we were also people who live under the rule of an imperfect government. To be clear, Americans are not a continuation of ancient Israel. You know, we're not special in the way that they're special. And our separation of church and state is very different than the theological government we see constructed in 1 Samuel. Different cultures, different continent, different millennia. But no matter where we fall on the political spectrum here in the US, we do wrestle with how to best mix our theological and socio-political desires. Because the way that we draw on our faith, our covenants, our experience in church community does inform how we live in the rest of the world, doesn't it? I hope so. Our bone-deep beliefs of justice, of liberation, of peace, those are not things we simply like on social media, but they are ways of living and being in the world that we inherit through our practices in the church, through our individual meeting with the divine, through our encounters with scripture and faith tradition. Our best hopes as citizens of a nation in this world are in part formed by our identity as Christians. And whether we like it or not, we live inside governing structures. We adhere to laws and pay our taxes, and we go to the voting booth with our convictions. And as people of faith, we try to figure out how to merge our theological desires about community and flourishing with what is written on a ballot. And we advocate for imperfect leaders. We act as a thorn in the side of some of them in hopes they'll change their minds. We talk to our friends and our family. We read, we pray. Because on one hand, our actions in the politi political sphere are powerful ways to love our neighbor, to make their lives better in tangible, measurable ways. And on the other hand, as much as we just want our government to function, dang it, we also know that it is woefully inefficient. So we are always in conflict about how to best merge our highest hopes as Christians with our scaled expectations as citizens of the world. We're doing our best. And all the while, we keep gathering around the table. We keep serving each other bread, trusting that something that is broken will somehow make us whole. And we keep pouring the cup, trusting that something that is messy will somehow make us clean. And we keep remembering Jesus together, a man who came from a nation that wandered in the wilderness under no king and who was ultimately killed by the state. And we trust that this person, whose name we now carry, will somehow help us learn how to live in a world where we look forward to a kingdom, the reign of God, while also having no idea how that could be a good idea, given the current state of affairs.
I guess what I'm trying to say is that this interaction between faith and politics, the way that they are threaded so delicately, is fraught. And according to 1 Samuel, it has always been fraught. The Israelites had a lot of valid reasons to be scared and to be concerned and to be frustrated. They had a strong military power breathing down their necks. Their leaders-elect, Joel and Abijah, were not trustworthy people. And they had grown in a number as, na as a nation and had very real issues that needed to be addressed. And the testimony that we have from a reflection of that time in 1 and 2 Samuel is conflicted at best. Is a king a good idea? It's not clear. And it's not clear how we are to engage our own faith and our own socio-political decisions in a way that maintains our integrity and prioritizes our faith commitments. Because unfortunately, scripture is not a guidebook. It's a witness to the world that God wants. It testifies to the hopes and fears of a people, of persons. And echoing through this messy time in Israel's history is that millennia later, we know that we are not alone in our hand-wringing, in our desire to want what God wants and bring more of what God wants in the world. I mentioned that the line of kings that will come after this moment is not encouraging. But these leaders are not the only important people in the long story of Israel. For every bad leader, there was a prophet or two committed to hearing from God about how Israel could love their neighbor better and more faithfully. There were voices in the wilderness and in the town square calling the people to account, not letting them forget their covenant. And there were average people gathering around tables, telling the story again of their distinctiveness, of the way they were called to be different than those around them. And that witness is still true today. May we have ears to hear. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.